If you have your Bible today, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1 is where we're going to be. Luke 2, starting in verse 1. And we're just going to read seven verses today. And that's it. There might be a little bit more than that. But uh, I know it's Christmas. I know you've got places to go and things to do. And so uh, we'll be out of here when we're out of here. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the day. We thank you so much for the many blessings that you've given to us. We thank you for our, our time together. And thank you for the many blessings that you've given to us as a church and for all the things that you're doing. Father, I just know that uh, you are working in, in ways that are unseen. But then there are times like today where we get to see uh, the fruit of the labor, the fruit of your spirit working in our midst. And Father, I, I thank you for these three people that came forward today and proclaimed Jesus through the baptismal waters. I pray, Lord, that you'd watch over them, that you'd protect them. It seems like in so many lives that after somebody makes a profession of faith, Satan gets to work. And so, Father, I pray that you protect them from Satan's temptations. And Father, I pray that you would help us as a church to guard them, to love them, to serve them, to teach them, to disciple them the ways that you would have us and that you would have them to walk. I thank you for our word that you give to us. Father, I pray that today as we gather around the word of God, that you would speak to us. That the message that you have for us would be divine, that it would enter into our ears and our minds and our hearts and our lives and it would change us, Father, to be more like your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to, to not go from this place the same way that we came. Help us to be changed through your word, through your spirit, through your son, through you. Father, I, I pray uh, for the person that's here today that has never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that have never gone into those baptismal waters. I pray that today would be a day where they acknowledge their need for you, where they admit that they are a sinner, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and confess Christ as Savior and Lord. For the believer that's here today, I pray, Lord, that if, if they're going through something that's true, troubling or a struggle or something that's going on that they're just discouraged. Father, I pray that they would find encouragement by being in the house of the Lord today. That you would speak to them, that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would give them joy and peace, hope, love. Father, if that were to happen, we would give you all the honor and all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. A few months ago, my wife and I were driving down the road in her fancy minivan. It's fancy. I mean, it's, it's everything Kathy always wanted to drive was a minivan. You know, she is, ever since we got married, she said that she wanted a minivan. I mean, the first one wasn't nearly as, as fancy as this one, but this one, it's got bells and whistles. Maurice. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nice minivan. Since we were driving down the road, 
and uh, very relaxed and just enjoying the drive. It wasn't a Sunday, but it was, it was a nice day, and there was a semi in front of me, and they kicked up a rock. I was on a 36, and uh, you know, uh, that rock hit the window in just the perfect place. You know what I did? It put a crack in that windshield. And that, you know, just a small little crack is all it was. Nothing big, nothing. But as we continued to drive and we continued to get closer to St. Joe, you know what happened to that crack? It's got bigger and bigger. And you could just watch that thing just go right across that windshield. You know, for a fancy minivan, those windshields aren't cheap, you know. And I look at that thing every day that we drive, and I'm like, we need to replace that, you know. And I just, for whatever, you know, you just, something so insignificant, so small, you think would just be not that big of a deal. But then you go and talk to Dodge, and you try to find a window, and it's like, that's a little bit harder than it seems to be, you know. Sometimes there are things like that in our life that seem so insignificant, so small, so you just wouldn't even think about it. And then it becomes quite the task, chore. It becomes a lot more of a bigger deal than you thought it was going to be. Sometimes that's how life is. In today's passage of Scripture, we see this principle lived out that there is something small and insignificant that really becomes much more significant as we go on. Verse 2, in the days of a decree, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The days surrounding the birth of Jesus, we don't know exactly the date of Jesus' birth, but most people believe that it's around the end of December, that, he, that the Spirit of God overshadowed Mary in March. Some even believe that it was March 25th, take that by nine months, and what do you get? December 25th. And that's why we celebrate Christmas on the 25th. Now, Caesar Augustus, he was the emperor of Rome. He was the, the nephew of the great Julius Caesar. And when Julius passed away, Caesar Augustus became emperor. And he issued this decree. A decree was an edict, a, a law demanding that something be done. And he was the first emperor to implement that a census should be taken. These censuses were done every 14 years, and it took years, years for them to be completed. The census was taken for a number of different reasons, but the main purpose, the main reason that Augustus, Caesar Augustus wanted these to be taken was for the purpose of taxation. Don't you love taxes? I mean, isn't that just the holiday spirit? I mean, nothing gets you more excited about anything than paying taxes. I don't even like paying my CPA, and they do, like, they do work, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I, I don't even like paying my CPA, let alone paying the, the IRS. But you got to. I mean, just think, if you tried getting out of paying your taxes for a little while, see what happens to you. I mean, they're coming for you, friends. There's nothing you can do to escape. It doesn't matter what's happening in your personal life. If you're pregnant, they don't care. I mean, if you've gone through a rough year, they don't care. They do not care. You've got to pay it. Period. <laughs> when the government makes you pay your taxes, you pay your taxes. The same thing was true for the Roman government. They wanted their money. 
the census was a way for the Roman government to collect from their residents. This was, verse 2, the first registration when Canarius was governor of Syria. And verse 3 reads, And all went out to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee and the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. The reason that Joseph went to Bethlehem was because this was his ancestral home. Joseph's family most likely also had land there. It could have been that he wanted to handle his taxes there in a way that was advantageous for him and Mary. They lived in Nazareth, but because of this census, they went to Bethlehem. I'm not sure about you, but this seems a little foolish to me for Joseph to take Mary with him and make this journey. A lot of risk involved to take Mary alongside of her in her pregnancy. This stage of the game, when you're young, though, there isn't a whole lot that you won't do to save a dollar, you know. Sometimes it's just, I mean, it just doesn't matter what the costs are. If you can save some money, we'll just go out of our way to do it. This past week, I drove down to New Mexico and uh, I met some guys down there that were from Illinois and Indiana. And uh, they told me they were taking the, the southern route to New Mexico. They were going to go south, and then they were going to go further south than they needed to go, and then they were going to go north. And I looked at the map, and their, their route they were going to take, I'm like, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would you go south and then go north? And then, yeah, I mean, I don't under, quite understand why you need to go so far south. Well, I get to southwest Colorado in the middle of December, and I go through my first mountain pass, and I realize pretty quickly why these older men went south in order to go north, you know. It doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. And I was like, wait a second here. This doesn't seem very smart. Maybe these old guys knew what they were doing going south, you know. But when you're young, sometimes you just, don't, like, you just think, what's the easy, what's the fastest, cheapest way to get there? You know, that's what you're concerned about. You're not concerned about snow, six inches of snow on a mountain pass when there's no cell phone service and there's nobody around. You just don't think about those things. Hey, there's no snow at the bottom of the mountain. There's not going to be any snow at the top of the mountain. That's not how that works, by the way. Sometimes going set. Oh, anyway, anyway, uh, not a short walk from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's 90 miles, friends. 90 miles. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but can you imagine your third trimester making a 90 mile journey under these conditions and these situations? Doesn't seem very smart, does it? 700 years. Before Jesus was born, the Old Testament prophet Micah prophesied concerning the birthplace of the Messiah. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, and one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Part of me wonders if this long journey had something to do with Mary going into labor there in Bethlehem. 
Or is it part of the plan all along? I mean, or did it just get extended? Or maybe, maybe they just knew about this prophecy in Micah and they wanted to honor that. Some of me wonders why Mary went at all. But maybe God was at work. And that's why Mary went. Sometimes God is at work and no matter what the plans we make, God has something else in mind. I think we've all been in those situations where we have a plan of our own and then midway through that plan, God lets us in on what his plan is and what's actually going to happen. The author of Luke talked to Mary. I mean, he, he, he did research. He was a smart man. He, he knew the story from Mary's mouth. You know? It's not like he talked to somebody else that talked to Mary or somebody else that talked to somebody else that talked to somebody else that talked to Mary. I mean, he literally, he went and he talked to her. That's why in Luke's gospel, we have such a detailed account of the birth of Jesus compared to all the other gospels. It's because Luke went and talked. I mean, there's, there's no indication, friends, that through this text, that Mary went there planning to have a baby. I mean, it, it just gives you the indication that this was kind of a surprise. That God had his hand Don't believe me, let's look at the last couple of verses of this passage. And then we're going to transition to another text. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. If in fact Mary and Joseph were planning on staying around in Bethlehem for longer than a few days, maybe they would have found some accommodations, you think? I mean, if they're from there, you think they might be able to find somebody that they know? Maybe they would have gotten there earlier. Surely they knew they weren't going to be the only ones in town. I mean, there's all kinds of different theories here or thoughts we could come up with for why this didn't happen. Husbands, when your wife was pregnant, <laughs> I mean, just think about that for a moment. Just think back in time. Didn't you know what you were going to do when that time came for her to give birth? I mean, I'm not sure about you, but my wife told me what I was going to do. You're going to take that bag. You're going to put it in the car. You're going to call these people. You're going to take this route to the hospital. And you're not going to do anything else. You know? I mean, I, I knew exactly what to do when that moment came. When it was time for Mary to give birth, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room in the inn. Does this sound planned? If this was planned, I believe their names would have been on a list at that end. Yet here, the newborn baby, the newborn king, laid not in a crib, but in a manger, a feeding trough. Dr. Joel Gregory, who was here just last year for a senior adult day, said this about the seemingly insignificant manger. He says, all over the planet, in cathedrals, apartments, huts, hovels, mansions, outdoor living representations, hundreds of millions of contemplate 
a baby in a feed trough. In Luke 2.7, this is actually a throwaway line, an afterthought. The Son of God was born in the equivalent of a storage shed at the back of the parking lot of a Motel 6. Mary and Joseph laid him in the manger as an act of private desperation and not without some shame in that honor-shame culture. Never could have been occurred to them that this, was one, this one act would be replicated hundreds of millions of times over 2,000 years all over the planet in places they did not know existed. How often God uses apparently hidden and inconsequential to change everything. God has a way of making huge events that in themselves seem inconsequential. I'm reminded, he says, of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that filthy concentration camp April 9, 1945. Dietrich did not in any way know who'd be an icon of history. He saw himself as a scaffold in a tiny, dirty camp on the edge of nowhere. God saw glory. God saw Dietrich's statue atop the doors at Westminster Abbey. Dietrich only saw a scaffold. When God sent this inconsequential manger, when God sent Jesus to that inconsequential manger, there was also a cross, an empty tomb, the church, and nobody knew it. There was you, friends. Nobody knew it. But you were part of that plan. I'm convinced that our lives have a lot less insignificant moments than what they seem. God allows us to go through different experiences and moments for significant reasons. For significant purposes. God allowed his son to experience the manger, the cross, the tomb for a reason. Why? Let's look at Galatians 4, 4-7 for the answer. We're not going to be here long and then we'll be done. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. When the time came to completion, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When Jesus came, he was born under the law. He lived under the law. He did not he did what no other man was able to do, though. He kept it, friends. He kept the law perfectly. At no point did he sway away from the boundaries of God's law for Israel. Think about all those who failed before him. The Old Testament, friends, we've talked about this before, is filled with men who tried and tried and tried and who could not keep it. So God, full of mercy and grace, sent his son to do what no, no other man could do. Why? To redeem. What does it mean to be redeemed? It means to buy back. Literally, that's what it means. God compensates for the mistakes that you, we make. 
The question I think we should be asking, somebody that's really studying this text, if God is redeeming, You know, I think about that. And does God owe anybody anything? Is God in debt to anyone? Absolutely not. God is not in debt, but requires himself to be pure, to be holy. And who requires that? You as well. And if I were able to stand in the presence of God, then I would need to be redeemed. Your, your mistakes, my mistakes, require compensation. Because sin requires compensation. There are consequences to our actions. The only way this could happen is by, by God sending his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die for our sins. Jesus Christ satisfies all debt that we have, friends. All charges have been dropped against you because of what God did through his son, Jesus. So that we might be sons. In today's world, to be adopted means the child becomes a legal descendant of the parents. It's irreversible. It's permanent. The child bears the new family's name, loses all legal ties with the family that birthed them, Under the Roman law, this is what adoption happens. It's what it means. Four things. All debts were canceled. All criminal charges were dropped. They could not be legally put to death by their new father. They could not be disinherited by their new father. When we are adopted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, all debts are canceled. All criminal charges are dropped. God will never allow you to taste the sting of death. And God will never disown you from the family of God. I mean, just think about that for a second. <laughs> if that's not enough, listen to this, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through the God. Paul is saying here that we have not only been given the gift of redemption that is found in Jesus, but we also have been given the Holy Spirit that lives inside of our heart. God places it at the core of who we are, the spirit that gives us direct access to God. And that spirit cries out to the Father, Abba, Father. Through this we obtain wisdom and understanding and knowledge about the will of God. God does this because he loves you. God doesn't withhold any good gift, but rather showers us with the best that he has. Christmas is a time where we come together and we celebrate these good and precious gifts that God has given to us. In order to be adopted, it's really simple, friends. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and confess Christ as Savior and Lord. It doesn't take anything else, friends. It takes a willing heart, a willing child to say, 
I want to be a part of the family of God. No greater gift that you can receive this Christmas than the gift of salvation. And it's available to anybody who's willing to say, Jesus is Lord. Father, we give you thanks for the day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together in this place to worship you. Father, I pray that you would, at this time, speak to us in a mighty way. Father, through these words, through your words, I pray that you would give us the opportunity to respond, to hear a message from you and to respond as you would have us. Father, I pray that at this time and in this moment, that your spirit would work in such a way that it would bring you honor and glory through the decisions that we make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.